Good morning, church. My name is Jeremy. I'm usually the youth and family pastor, but uh, every once in a while I get to get up here. And man, it's been really fun studying these past, well, I kind of turned into two weeks of, of studying for today. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to jump in. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Um, this is the, if you, if you break out the Revelation uh, outline uh, found in chapter 1, verse 19, uh, John is told to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. We're in the things which are. Uh, it, it, I mean, Revelation's an amazing book, one of my favorites. It's, it comes with its own outline. It comes with a blessing for those who read it and who listen and obey, um, and, and it has its own outline. So we are t- studying currently the things which are, and that's the seven letters to the churches that were in Asia, in, in modern-day Turkey. Um, each, each of the letters that's, that's written by Jesus have kind of an outline. Uh, it's written to, to who it's written, uh, the revelation of Jesus to that specific church, uh, the recognition or commendation of where the, that church is at, and then it gives, uh, in a majority of them, it gives reproof or correction, um, except for two of them. Two of them have no reproof or correction. Uh, then the instruction is given with what to do with that information, and then there's always a reward at the end for those who overcome um, I, think we, I think I missed the map, but let's pull up a map real quick just to be reminded of where we're at. So this is modern-day Turkey. Uh, the first uh, letter was written to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Curtis talked about last week the, the letter that was written to Smyrna. Those are both port cities. And then today, we're going to be at the most northern part of, of Pergamos, and that is... Um, the first city that is mentioned that's not a port city. So it, it, it got its wealth from other uh, areas. But... Um, it's interesting, it starts out with this, and we'll, we'll, we'll take time to stand up and read in just a moment. What I'm going to do is like kind of just get, in, get you into the culture and the context of what, what, what Pergamum was like, what it was like to live there, and then we'll, we'll stand up, read the letter, and then we'll break it down. But it says this, and the, and the angel of the church in Pergamos writes this. And so it addresses the church. And sometimes it's good to kind of back up, like, what, where, where, what do we think about church when we say the word church? Is it from Sunday school where, where we did that thing where you put your hands, you kind of interlock your hands, and you say, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and you see all the people, right? That's, that's kind of a Sunday school understanding of church. The building's not the church, it's the people, right? And maybe our minds, when we think of a church, kind of automatically go to that traditional uh, steepled church, you know, like the one that we have over the chapel at the West, West Campus. That's kind of the modern day church. But in Pergamos, it would have been more of an underground cave or crypt. Uh, at this time, the church was still being heavily persecuted. And so they, had, they, didn't ha- they couldn't have a church with a steeple. They had to be underground. Often they met in the crypts underground. Uh, they would have little candles and they would have been lighted. But that, that, that's more of a modern day Turkey church that the church in Pergamos is, is that the angel's writing to, the angel's addressing. Uh, Turkey is known for these underground caves. Uh, off in the east of Turkey, is the, it's called the Darin Kuyu Underground. And a, a guy went to go uh, build and add an extra room in his house, and he knocked down a wall, and he found an opening. And so he went into that opening, and then he found room after room after room until he found, I think it was seven layers. It went 280 feet down and could house, they said, over 20,000 people. 
So Turkey, often there's all these crypts and, 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 and caverns and stuff underground. So Turkey's known for that. So the church, the church that the, at Pergamos would have been meeting underground. And let me tell you what was above ground. The spiritual atmosphere that was there in Pergamum. Today, um, it, it's, it's, it falls into the name of the modern city of Bergama. But Pergamum or Pergamos means height or elevation. And, it, and it's probably because of the Acropolis that was just to the north, this big uh, high tower of a mountain, thousand feet above that, 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 that overlooked the city where all the temples were at. So it means height or elevation, or if you want to break those two words apart, it means by marriage or, or as in a mixed marriage. And we'll kind of get into that, how that plays into history, the church history. But looking up at the Acropolis, that would have just, it would have, was one of the, the staples of the city. It was big white columns, it was, it was as impressive as it gets. But Pergamum was a capital city of the, what was once the kingdom of Pergamum, and it was a kingdom from 282 until 190, sorry, 129 BC until it became part of the, of the, of the Roman providence of Asia. And so that, this city was important. It was, oversaw the whole empire of Pergamum. That Acropolis, like I mentioned, was, was just to the north of the city. And I can't, I can't understate how highly religiously charged this area was. Uh, throughout this city, we find at least seven temples. Archaeology has uncovered at least seven temples. There's one temple to the, the god Asclepius. There was two temples to Athena. There was one up on the Acropolis that, that, that the, the, um, the elites would have worshipped at. That was kind of their city as well. And there would have been different orgy parties to worship the god Athena up there. And then there was the god Athena who also had a temple down lower for the common people to come and worship. There was the temple to the god Hera. There was the temple to the god Demeter. There was the temple to the god uh, Traasian or Caesar, which was known as the god who in flesh. Later on, about 100 years later, after uh, this letter was written to Pergama, there was the Red Basilica. And you can go and Google that later, but it's an interesting building. It's one of the oldest remaining large, large brick buildings that, that's there today. Uh, in that huge building... Uh, there were all these alcoves where they had all these different gods that they worshipped. But in the middle was supposedly the largest of the gods. And it's the place where they said the idols came to life. This idol supposedly came to life as people worshipped it. Well, what we know from archaeology is that there was a tunnel that the priests would use and they would access the bottom of this idol and they would somehow climb inside of the idol and then begin to animate the idol as people worshipped it. I mean, how creepy is that? You don't know about the tunnel. You just know you walk in this building and this idol is moving. Like, that's, that's hardcore, okay? And it kind of speaks to Revelation 13.5 where it says that the, the false prophet's going to make this image to the beast come alive. That was the Red Basilica Temple. After it became the church age, it, it, it became a, a church. It became a Christian church. But that was during this time. There was, it, was a high, it was a place of entertainment. Entertainment was a huge priority. There was four theaters all spread out throughout Pergama. Um, the largest was up at the Acropolis, and it's said to seat 10 to 15,000 people. 
and that somebody at the stage at the bottom could, could, could with, with a, without any amplification, could, you could hear in a, in, a, in a crowd of 10 to 15,000 people, you could hear all the way at the top as if they're speaking to you. Uh, it's still there today. It's one of the steep, it's, it actually is the steepest in the Roman Empire. So entertainment was a huge priority for the, the, the people at Pergamum. It was also a place of learning. It had the second largest library in the world, second only to Alexandria. It said that they, at, the, at one point they had over 2,000 papyrus, sorry, 200,000 papyruses there in Pergamum in that library. There were gymnasiums, there were Turkish baths, there was, a, there was said to be the sacred well, there was a number of fortified gates and walls. I mean, this, this river ran straight through the middle of Pergamum that the Red Basilica was eventually built over. There was a hospital, it was, which, which also served as a medical school, but it was, we'll get, we'll get into that, it was a strange one. But the two main sites that really made everything else pale in comparison was one, the Acropolis. And it was a high hill overlooking the city, it was the royal city. Once again, there was multiple temples up there that different gods were worshipped. It's where the elites lived, and it's also where the altar to Zeus was. Now, the altar to Zeus is said to have been used as a place to worship the god Zeus 24-7. Like this, this is where continual sacrifice was made to Zeus there at the altar of Zeus. And interesting, that mythology, if you study it, says that Pergamum was the place where Zeus was born. So you imagine this, the people and Christians that lived under the ashes of the offering to the god Zeus, they would see these pillar of, 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 of smoke going up in the sky and then oftentimes this, this smoke would descend upon them. When my family lived in Philippines, um, it was this one event every year where I don't, remember, I don't remember the specifics of it, but everybody in the city, or at least a lot of people in the city, lit tires on fire. And so the whole city in Metro Manila of six million people, you would just, it would just, it, the, the air was so just acritic and just oppressive and you couldn't, you couldn't close a door to keep it out. It was just like everybody was breathing this horrible, horrible air. And so it made me consider what was it like to live under, as a Christian, the altar of Zeus as this, these ashes are raining down on you, knowing what's happening up there. And interesting enough, in the age of the internet, it's, 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 we know that a majority of the time uh, that in, in Bergama that the wind direction came from the north. So, so all those, all, a majority of the ashes were spilling down into that city. And I just think how oppressive that was for the people there. But you couldn't escape it because there was also, down within the city, the Asclepion, and that was like this hospital, medical school, uh, another pagan religious place. It was a place of occultish healing where they said that the god Asclepius was worshipped and supposedly healed emperors, gladiators, and the common people. And snakes were a huge part of that. Um, so you can't see too much, but there's little, these little snakes. These are all recovered there in Pergama. At that Asclepion, people would come for healing for different ailments, and what the priests that were there would do, they would, put them, they would have everyone sleep in this big underground chamber. 
And they would be put to sleep either whether by drugs, different, different concoctions of drugs or different incantations, and these people would begin to sleep. And as they slept, the priests would release the snakes. So as, you, as, as, the, as the people that are seeking healing are, are sleeping, these snakes are crawling all, I mean, think of Indiana Jones, okay? That, that's it, you know? These snakes are crawling all over them. And what it, what it said was that the snakes, that the god Asclepius would, would meet the people that were there for healing and would tell them what they needed to do for healing. So people came from all over the empire to be healed of this place. It was a, it was a place where they sought, sought health. I mean, see, we even have coins. We've dug up coins that these snakes are on their money. So these snakes are a large part of what was happening there in Pergamum. It's interesting because we get that symbol that we use today from modern medicine. Do you guys recognize that? That's not a coincidence, okay? Let me go straight to the the, the, the World Health Organization, a screenshot I I, I took. It says this, whose emblem was chosen by the first World Health Assembly in 1948. Interesting year. The emblem consists of the United Nations symbol surmounted by a staff with a snake coiled around it. The staff with a snake has long been a symbol of medicine and the uh, medical profession. It originates from the story of Asclepius, this is from their website, who was revered by the ancient Greeks as a god who healed and whose cult involved the use of snakes. Asclepius, incidentally, was so uh, successful at saving lives that the legend goes, Hades, the god of the underworld, complained about him to the supreme god Zeus, who feared that the healer might make humans immortal, killed Asclepius with a thunderbolt. So Asclepius often appears either as a serpent or with a serpent. They sought Asclepius for healing. The Bible has something very different to say about the serpent. Let's stand up and read the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Pergamum. So starting in verse 12 of chapter 2. And the angel of the church of Pergamum writes, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a, very, a, few, a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught ba- Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, hear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one that holds the churches and you're the one that holds the two-edged sword. Lord, I pray you'd come, Lord, instruct, correct, and bless us, Lord, as we read your word and we study it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, church. 
So let's jump into verse 12, now that we have a little bit of the context of what was going on. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So it's, 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 it's reminding John of the revelation that he received in chapter one. Verse 16 says, and he had in his right hand the seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And it's a two-edged sword. And it was sharp. We know from Hebrews 4 that it says that the word of God is a living and powerful and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword that John or that the Jesus references in, in Revelation 2, it's a, it's, a, it's, the, it's a broad, two-edged fighting sword, like a close sword, like a close combat, like, a, like an intimate sword. And he's saying that's what the word of God is, this, this Jesus, this divine reason. Jesus Christ himself is that word. And as Jesus is the one who holds the sword and who wields the sword, who is the sword, and it's Jesus who's able to, to break apart that division. See, we're, we're tripart beings. The Bible says we're tripart beings. We're, we're made of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And, and when we die, we're, we're separated from our body, but our soul and spirit are together. They're interlocked so closely that it's only Jesus is the one who can pierce that division. It's only Jesus that can discern a thought from the intent of our hearts. It's like a surgeon's knife. He's able to get in there. He's sharp. I want to throw something out interesting. So the word of God we know is sure and steadfast and proven and perfect. But God sometimes chooses to reveal himself in nature. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And Genesis 1.14 says that, that the stars were placed there for signs and for seasons. So take this for what it is, but um, if, uh, if you want to look out, out at the stars, last, last weekend I got to camp out with my daughters in the backyard. And even, even though we're living in Santa Maria with all the sea lights, we were still able to see some of the stars. And I remember Elsie just being in awe of like, oh, wow, look at that one, look at that one. It was, it was, a, it was a great night. But if, this is an amazing little tool, it's a star chart, so it shows what star constellations are above you, uh, with the center being Polaris, so which, the star which, which all the stars kind of uh, circumnavigate around. And if you were to go out tonight, you might see the breaker. See, Micah 2.13 has this prophecy about the coming Messiah. Micah 2.13 says, the breaker is come up before them. They have broken up, they have passed through the gates and are gone out by it and their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. So Micah 2 calls the Messiah the breaker. Well, if we were to look at the stars tonight, what are we going to see? So, so it's, it's fun. You line up the, the day with the time at, at, at night. And so if you go out tonight between you know, 9.30 and 10, this, this is the, the constellations that you'll see. Well, right here, you'll see Perseus. And Perseus is known as the breaker. And next to Perseus, almost, I mean, you could almost say in his right hand, are the, uh, the Pleiades, the, a group of seven stars. Does that sound like the book of Revelation? 
outside of that, you have the Taurus and the Cassiopeia. Taurus is, is, is a bull. Both Greek and Hebrew use the bull as the symbol for the letter alpha, or A, the start of their alphabet. Over here, Cassiopeia is shaped as a W, and it's the lowercase letter for omega. And then the triangulum constellation is a sword, a two-edged sword. So here you have the breaker holding the stars, the seven groups of stars, the church. He's the alpha and the omega, and he has a sword coming out. Now, once again, this, this could be totally coincidence. Totally coincidence. And once again, it's not perfect as the word of God, but it's amazing when we see that God placed the stars there for a reason. So what is Jesus' message to this church after his revelation? He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This isn't just, I know, I've heard. No, this is, I, I, I see, I perceive. Jesus knew the type of environment, the type of culture that the church at Pergamum was, was living in. And he has this to say. He says, where Satan's throne is. I don't think that's, I think we, I, I, I take that very literally. I think there was a time and place where Satan had his throne. You see, Satan is not like God. Satan is a created being, which means Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at all times. <coughs> Satan has a, a, a locality because he is a created being. And it seems like at this time, Satan had set up his throne here in Pergamum. Was it the altar to Zeus? Was it within the, 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 the uh, Asclepion? Interesting to note, and this is one of those like little history rabbit holes that I went down. There was an altar to Zeus originally built in, this, in the second temple in Jerusalem in the mid-160 B.C.s. It's about 164, 65 B.C. Uh, Rome had occupied Israel, had, had taken them captive, had said, you're not going to worship your god Yahweh anymore, you're going to worship the god, this god Zeus. And so they set up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and they, they, slaughter, they slaughtered and sacrificed a pig there on the altar. If you know anything about history between your intertestamental time, that's the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So Matthias Maccabee, and his sons went in and they, they got rid of the altar to Zeus and they cleansed the temple. And because the oil lasted miraculously long, that's where we get Hanukkah from, that, that Jesus celebrated and the Jews still celebrate today. So the temple was cleansed of the altar to Zeus in the mid-160s B.C. Arch, the latest archaeological evidence in Pergamum shows that that's right when the altar to Zeus was built in Pergamum. So did Satan's throne, try, did he try to set up his throne in the Holy of Holies in Israel only to be cast out, to be cleansed, and then he decided to set it up in Pergamum where mythology said it was his birthplace? Interesting. It was then... That altar Pergamum was used for, I think, about seven centuries. It, it, it began to disappear from history about the time of the rise of Islam. And the altar was kind of lost to the world for a long time. 
that Alter de Zeus then began, appeared in 1870 when a, 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 an explorer was in the land and, and he, he recognized that, man, what, this, is, this is something of significance. He was an archaeologist, he was digging around, and he began to take apart this altar to Zeus and then send it back to his homeland, uh, to this new country, to Germany in 1871. And they, in Berlin, they began to b- rebuild this altar to Zeus in the Pergamum Museum. There's a few people that even say that that altar to Zeus was completed around 1899, the year that Hitler was born. Maybe a coincidence. So it was there constructed in Berlin, and it was from that architecture that Hitler uh, asked his architect to make the Nuremberg um, rally complex look like. He wanted, he wanted to take inspiration from the different gods that were worshipped and to make it into the, the third right. This wasn't an accident. Over and over again, like the like the Indiana Jones series, you know, he he was Hitler was searching for this ancient artifacts that he might revitalize these empires and and get the power, and Germany be, became became possessed at that point, I believe. I mean, how, how could a whole nation allow what happened to the Jews at that point? There, there is a number of, of, of pastors, one, one, one pastor named Pastor Doug Van Dorn, he's a, a pastor out in Colorado, he makes an excellent case that in the Old Testament, we don't see the name Satan, but we use the, the name Baal was used. So he says that Satan is Zeus, and the one and the same with Baal, and it later becomes the prince of Rome. Jesus says, I know where you live where Satan's throne is at. And if you look at that, 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 that temple to Zeus, it looks like a throne. And so what do they do with that? What are these churches that know that Jesus knows about where they live? He says, I, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There it is, again, mentioned twice. Jesus is, is commending their faith. He says, you hold fast to my name. You don't sway with a culture, but you adhere to my beliefs. My, you observe me to none other. They didn't simply add Jesus to the beliefs around them. They, they, they held on and clung to Jesus alone. They didn't change because of the culture around them. And they didn't deny, the, the, Jesus said, my faith, that historical faith that had been passed down. The church did not deny the doctrine of Jesus that, God, that Jesus was God in flesh. Even among all these idols, I mean, the weird ones that moved and the, the, so the perceived healings that were happening at the Asclepion, even in the face of the, temp, the beautiful temples that looked like they were gonna last forever. So Antipas, who was martyred, was this. It says this. It, he, it wasn't just the Smyrna church that Curtis talked about last week that was persecuted. The, the, this church as well. But church history says that he was a contemporary of Antipas, or sorry, contemporary of the apostles. He was a bishop of the church of Pergamum, 
Everyone there offered idols, but he alone preached Christ, who the pagan priests considered Jesus. They considered Jesus as a new god. They're like, we, we worship the ancient gods. You worship this new god, Jesus. And that's okay if you want to worship Jesus, but you have to worship all these other gods and Jesus. And he refused to do that. Uh, so he was dragged into the temple of Artemis, thrown down into a large, hot, copper bowl where they would have sacrificed to idols, and he was burned alive. As he was dying, like Jesus, like Stephen, he was praying for those who were persecuting him. He was praying for those. And because of that, the Orthodox faith has called him the saint of toothaches. (laughs) I don't know why they call him the saint of toothaches, but he was a man that Jesus knew exactly his name. I mean, you remember, put yourself in the church of Pergamum, like, here, here's, here's their leader, Pat, like dying, being, dying this horrible, awful death. And you're like, man, is, what, what is God going to do? Look at those temples. They look like they're going to last forever. Look at these healings that are happening. What about this? But Jesus says, I know where you live, and you have held on to me. Early church apologist Tertullian, who lived from 155 AD to 240, he wrote this. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So Satan had to change tactics. He must have thought, if I can't beat them, I'm going to have to join them. And that's exactly what Satan did at the church of Pergamum. And that's what Jesus is calling out. External persecution turned internal perversion. So here is the reproof and correction that Jesus gives. And really, you, you got to think like, oh, Jesus, go easy on them. I mean, they share the same zip code as Satan, <laughs> right? You think, oh, it's okay, just, just to take it easy. But no, Jesus has words for them. Even though they, they live in the neighborhood of Satan, where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is, he still says, I, I have a few things against you. He said, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That's why doctrine is so important. We have to understand and know doctrine. It's, it's, it, doctrine is in everything that we read, we watch, everything we listen to, even the music that we hear in our cars or the music that we sing at church. All that has doctrine And we have to be very careful. Jesus cares about our doctrine. So Balaam, this whole doctrine of Balaam, like, what is that? Balaam was that guy that had the donkey that talked to him. You guys probably knew that one, right? From Sunday school. So so Balaam was this guy, this prophet, uh, turned higher for money, who uh, tried to curse Israel. He was hired to curse Israel, but every time he went to open his mouth to curse Israel, God gave him a blessing to give to Israel. Four times he tried. Four times he was unsuccessful to curse the nation of Israel. So what he ended up doing was he ended up telling King Balak, hey, if you just put idols in front of these people and ask them to worship it through sexual, uh, sexual perversion, then you'll bring the nation down. And that's exactly what happened. Numbers 31, 16 says this. It says, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the instant of Peor, 
and there was a plague among the congregation of Israel. God had, because of the idol worship that had come into the nation of Israel and all the horrible things that had gone along with it, God had to go and wipe, and, 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 and wipe out about 36,000 people, the Bible says, because of what they, the perversion they'd given themselves over to. And that was just the warning of Pergamum. You've become corrupted. You've come corrupted. You've allowed these things, that you've allowed some people to come in and teach these things as if they're okay, and these things are not okay. Even though you're living with Satan, it's not okay. There's not an excuse. Because the, because the council at Jerusalem had set the precedence for what the Gentile church should look like. In Acts 15, we find this. Verse 19 says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, things strangled, and from blood. And church, this still applies today. Still applies today. And thus, he says, you also hold to the doctrine of the Neocolaitans, which thing I hate. Like in the church of Ephesus, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans has, had slipped in. There's some... We'll back and forth about what the doctrine of Nicolaitans is, but Amir Safari, he, he kind of puts it this way, and he references some of the early church fathers. He says, it's very possible that the founder of this Gnostic sect was, Nicola, uh, was Nicholas of Antioch. He was a leader in the early church and one of seven specially re, uh, designated by the disciples to serve. Oops. That's found in Acts chapter 6. Two early church fathers, he says, quote, uh, quoting still Amir, two early church fathers, Arrhenius and Clement of Alexandria, point to Nicolaus as the founder of this heresy. And Hippolytus, of, in his ref, refutation of all heresies, said that Nicholas had departed from sound doctrine and was in the habit of inoculating differency in both life and food. Hippolytus was referring to the agnostic belief that flesh isn't real, so whatever you do with your body is fair game because it doesn't really count as sin. Remember the body, soul, and spirit? And that's still what our culture is saying today. You do what you want with your body. My body, my choice. So what do you do with that? What do we do with that? Well, here's the instruction given. Jesus said, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There was doctrine that had crept into the church, and yet Jesus, through the sword, knew which person in people in the church held that. And he's like, I will come in and fight against them, not against the whole church. Jesus made a promise to the church that he's going to build the church. But there was those within the church that held that, and he's, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, he calls them to repent. And repentance is the acceptance of being lost and a surrender to the one who can restore you. What was the amazing grace saying? It says, I was once lost, but now I'm found. Repentance says, I cannot climb out of this. I am lost. And it's the surrender to the one and the only one that can restore you. So Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's a, it makes this message, it wasn't just for that church at Pergamum in that time period. 
It was for all seven of those churches because it was to be read aloud amongst all seven churches. But it was also for us as well. It says, he who has an ear. And as Steve said, maybe ear or, you know, whether you have a lobe or don't have a lobe, you still have an ear. So he who has an ear, this is, this is a message for each and every one of us. And it's prophetic in a way that it speaks about the sequence of the, the church age from the Pentecost till his return. See, Pergamum speaks to that time of the mixed marriage where, where Constantine came in and he said that the church and the state were one and that the Christianity would be the state religion and he married them together and it corrupted the church. It was a great time of corruption. And all week I've really wrestled with, with what, what are our idols now? If this, was, if this is meant for us as well, what, what idols do we wrestle with now? What idols are we giving ourselves over to now? Seems like the sexual immorality can, is a little bit more uh, noticeable, but what, what, what things in our life have become idols? And I, and I, wonder, I can't help wonder if pleasure, ease, uh, learning, health, are these specific things have become our idols with which our culture lifts up and we sacrifice to, or at least we eat of the things that were sacrificed to them. And really, in that church and in our church as well, there's no excuse for sexual immorality. If God didn't give them a pass because they had Satan's zip code, it doesn't give us a pass today either. Amen. Church, I love it that in God's mercy and grace, Jesus doesn't leave us with a punishment, but with a reward. I worked with a, a coworker a number of years ago, and he was a a coach, he had all daughters, kind of like myself. He had all daughters, but they were all a lot older. And he, he coached them. He said, you gotta, you gotta give them the sandwich. You gotta say, good job, honey, you did so great. And then here's the little correction. You might wanna change this on this, you know, whatever. And then, hey, go out there and get their tiger. You're an amazing, doing an amazing job. He always like, you gotta sandwich it. And that's what Jesus does. He kind of gives us the good stuff at the end. He gives us that reward to him who overcomes. And that Greek word overcomes is nikeo. I know in a KO that goes here. And to he who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. That hidden manna speaks to the food that God supernaturally gave to those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, where God himself provided that bread from heaven or Psalm 78 calls angels food, which can lead me to a whole nother tangent, like angels food, angels need to eat food, but that's, that's a tangent, we're not going to do that. Manna, that. Some of that manna was taken away and it was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant in a jar. And that speaks, this hidden manna speaks to God's provision. No doubt those people in Pergamum and the caves and dwelling below and under the, just the, the influence of all this culture, they, they were like, how are you going to provide for us, Lord? Well, God promised his provision. And then he says, I will, on a stone, I will give you a white stone. And that white stone in that time meant, meant acquittal. Meant, meant you are not guilty. There was also a token that, that said you are part of, a, of an exclusive group or exclusive club. That white stone was given, meant I, Jesus, you are accepted by Jesus. And then this thing, this name written on that stone. 
And maybe this is my thoughts on that, but the, my conjecture, but I, I, I think that name has to do with our deepest desire, our greatest longing in this life that will never be met in this life. That God is a name for us that only he knows. Abram went to Abraham. It was high father to father of many. Jacob was heel snatcher. His name was changed to governed by God, to Israel. Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. What will your name be? I, I don't know. Only you will know. But God has a name for you. So to this day, in, in that that modern town of Bergama, the Acropolis on the hill stands in ruins. It's broken, plundered, unkept. It's only a relic from the past when once they must have looked up and been like, this thing will never fail. It'll be here forever. But no, it's, it's in ruins. But you see, the church that was underground during that letter has remained and has strengthened and is still here almost 2,000 years later. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus keeps his promises. So church, it's better to do business with God than to have God do business with you. If there's things that have crept in, doctrine that's crept in, if there's sexual immorality, those things need to be dealt with. Bring them to the foot of the cross. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be saved. We're going to respond in worship, and then we're going to have a response in prayer. If you would like prayer, the prayer team will be up after the, the worship song to pray with you. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's an opportunity for that too. Come up to the prayer team. Look to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that, that you knew the conditions of the, the church at Pergama. You're intimately acquainted with all their ways. You knew, you knew the specific caverns that they minted underground. Even though they were hidden away, they weren't hidden from you, Lord. Nothing is hidden from you. Jesus, thank you, Lord, your word of God is so sharp and so accurate and pierces, Lord, even this, the divisions that we have in our body, Lord, soul and spirit. Do your work right now, Lord. If there's anything that we need to call out, Lord, if there's anything we need to confess, Lord, let us do that now. But Lord, bless us, Lord. Thank you that we can be overcomers by your strength. In Jesus' name we pray.